The state of higher education is tumultuous. Not a single week goes by without some story of political activism, unjust cancellation, campus protest, etc. hitting the news. Our universities really don't have to be like this. Rolston College aims to reshape this landscape. Alongside its MA in the humanities, Rolston is launching a summer school teaching Latin in Sicily, Rome and other sites. The program, running from July to September, offers immersive language learning with experts, literary reading, seminars and even archaeological visits. Most importantly, this course is designed for people who have never studied Latin. Anyone in the world can apply, and the strongest applicants will be awarded full scholarships that cover the cost of the entire program. Apply by the 31st of May at rolston.ac forward slash Latin dash program. If you take, for example, the number of recorded crimes per prisoner in this country, it's gone from six per prisoner in, um, in about uh, 1910 or 1900 to 114 in, in 2000. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kissen. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. A fascinating guest we have for you today. He's an author, cultural critic, former prison physician and psychiatrist known best by his pseudonym Theodore Dalrymple. Welcome yes. to Trigonometry. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure. I promised to ruin your introduction. I think I just about got everything in. Yes. Um, you have had a, an extraordinary life and uh, your work is very, very interesting. Before we get into it, tell everybody about your background. Who are you? How are you where you are? How have you ended up here talking to us? Uh, well, uh, I've ended up here talking to you because you invited me. Quite. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I didn't break my way in or anything like that. But, um, uh, well, I became a doctor, I went to Africa, I had a great desire to see the world, so I spent quite a lot of my life uh, touring the world. Uh, when I was young I had a slight uh, attraction to danger, and, um, and then I sort of settled down and, uh, and was a psychiatrist and a prison doctor. And one of the themes of your writings, I mean, we'll, we'll get into a lot of them, but one of the themes is a word that, you know, if you were to utter it in the confines of a normal TV studio, I think people would have a meltdown. But it is a word that is important, which is responsibility. It's something that you've written a lot about in the context of our culture. What are we missing around that subject, do you think? Well, I think there's a lot of doublethink going on in that people think they themselves are responsible, but they take away responsibility from other people. So they see other people as vectors of forces, if you like. Uh, but of course, no one can think of himself as a vector of forces until that is he has to make excuses for himself when, of course, he begins immediately to talk about being a vector of forces. When you do something wrong, the first thing you, you think of is excuses for yourself. And then after a time, you realise that you're, you're telling yourself porkies. And, <laughs> uh, but sometimes people don't get that far. Uh, they deceive themselves and often they're given, uh, shall we say, advantages for, for deceiving themselves in that way. So they're both deceived and deceiving. But, and yet there's a still small voice that tells them that this is not true. Now, that's my belief. 
And you say that they get given uh, incentives or get given rewards. What, what, what do you mean by this? Well, one of the, let me give you an, a, an illustration. Once I made a terrible mistake when calling a social worker because I had a patient. I, I won't describe it, but anyway, I said this is a particularly deserving case. Well, of course, deserving is not a word that you can use because if there are deserving cases, there must be cases that are undeserving or at least less deserving. And that means that you make a judgment. And making a judgment is a very bad thing to do. Though actually, the idea of not making a judgment is itself a judgment. Mm. So <laughs> it is a consequence of being a conscious human being, I think, that you make a judgment. And the only way you don't make a judgment is by being unconscious. So we all do make judgments. Um, I don't know whether that's but, but we now pretend that we don't, is your point. Yes. And what... what Culturally, what sort of impact does that have, in your opinion, across our society when we adopt this way of looking well, at the Well, I world? think it allows people to think that there's no other way than uh, they don't have to make any effort to behave other than they are behaving. And in fact, there are quite a lot of people in the country, and this is a, a bad situation, who are no better off if they make an effort than if they don't make an effort. They have nothing either to hope for or nothing to fear. And that's an awful situation for a human being because it takes meaning out of life, meaning out of effort. Uh, but unfortunately, when you get to that situation, uh, often you don't realise you're making decisions. You are making decisions, but they're often highly irresponsible ones and foolish ones. And you have been quite critical of the welfare state in yes. some of your writings. And that is, a, dare I say it, Anthony, a very controversial position. What is your criticism of it? Well, you see, I don't think... I wouldn't be critical of the welfare state. I don't think the welfare state is, um, shall we say, a sufficient condition for what we're going through. There's a necessary condition. When it's allied also to this kind of non-judgmentalism, where you, you know, people... Uh, don't think one thing is better than another. That's a recipe for disaster. So in some countries where they have a welfare state actually better than ours, uh, which, though it does actually make judgments, more judgments than ours, um, it's all right. If the, if the culture is all right, it could be all right. So it's not the welfare state in itself, it's the welfare state in conjunction with uh, cultural developments. And what is the right of our culture? Aren't we all right? Aren't we doing okay? <laughs> well, I mean, I suppose it depends which end of the telescope you're looking down mm. or whether you see the glass half full or half empty. I would say that, I mean, my view is that behaviour uh, in this country is worse than any other country that I know of comparable type. Mm. And uh, the behaviour. What are you talking about? Well, the rudeness, the crudity, the litter. For just take litter. litter. Britain is the most littered country in Western Europe. What does, what lies behind litter? People throwing away stuff without due care, right? Yes, but what lies behind that? I would argue, and this is me being a miserable pessimist, a certain contempt, as in, uh, as in, I don't care. Well, let, let I mean, yes, of course, I, I, I agree. And uh, partly, the I suppose, they don't even see it. Or if they see it, they don't see that it means anything. Uh, but I used to go, I used to go uh, walk every, every afternoon, or uh, three afternoons a week, from my hospital to the prison next door, which was a few hundred yards. 
Two, I, I examined the litter on the way. There was always litter. And what I discovered was an Englishman's uh, street as his dining room. Uh, and you see what they eat. You see what they throw away. Uh, it's no wonder that there's an enormous amount of obesity and so on and so forth. The other thing I learned is that the fundamental cause of, of car crime is good weather. Uh, because when I went uh, in the sunshine, uh, there was glass glittering everywhere, cars broken into. When it was cold or raining, there, were no, there was no glass. Mm. So I concluded from that, according to <laughs> some kind of sociological thinking, that the real cause of crime, car crime is uh, good weather. But anyway, uh, this kind of degeneration is absolutely everywhere. When you drive in this country, one thing I've noticed was very, to me, interesting and significant is that after roadworks have been finished, nobody, neither the council nor presumably the uh, contractor, takes away the notices and, and lets the frame just rot. And there are sandbags everywhere. Well, you don't see that in France. You don't see it in Spain. It's because nobody, nobody has any pride in what they're doing. The council doesn't do it. The council... Well, I won't talk about council, but... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they're not interested in that. That's beneath them, of course, because they're trying to reform human nature rather than pick up the litter. Boom. So you mentioned reforming human nature. Yes. Now, that is interesting to me. Let's talk about that because... We're having this sort of slightly theoretical conversation about a few things that are maybe indicative of this and that. Yes. Let's get to the core of it. Yes. When you talk about councils trying to reform human nature, what do you mean? Well, they're, they're trying to make people uh, better than they are. Um, and they're more interested in, uh, in uh, if I may say so, political correctness, many of them, than in doing the things that councils are supposed to do, which is look after the towns and cities. Uh, I, my council does all kinds of things which, uh, which it shouldn't be doing. Uh, but it doesn't do those things which it should be doing. But and th it... this, is, this is fairly typical of our, uh, of our government. But, mm, when and you... it seems to be worse in this country than other countries. Sorry, I, I don't, didn't mean to interrupt. I was just, I'm very yeah. keen on this point yes. because I think it strikes to the, to the core of, of some of, of the things that you, you believe. And people might be watching this saying, well, isn't it the job of councils to create the right incentive structure to make people better than, quote, they are, as you put it? No, no, they're, they're there to sweep the street. <laughs> 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 and if they don't do that, they can't do that properly. Uh, well, I, mean, I, I don't want them to change human nature. Of course, you can, you can give people incentives, uh, as we've talked about, you can give people incentives to make them uh, better or worse, or at least not to make them better or worse. Not to change human nature, but, but to, to make it that behaving badly has no consequences, mm. or no apparent consequences. It does have consequences, mm. because, uh, you know, um, you can't escape bad consequences but not, not immediate bad consequences for ability to eat or, or have a roof over your head or anything like that. So um, we get all kinds of nonsense now about uh, people changing sex and so on and so forth. And you see what happened to the, the professor of um, philosophy. Who she was, was in that chair a week ago. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, she, she was saying things which I would have thought 20 years ago no one would have thought worth saying because it was so self-evident. 
um, and now she's been persecuted for them. It's, it's true. She has been persecuted for them. Was there a particular moment, Anthony, where you started to see culture and the world changing? Or do you think it's been a gradual, slow creep? Well, you could never point to a... I mean, you can't say that, uh, like Virginia Woolf said, human nature changed on the 11th of November 1910 <laughs> or something like that. Of course, she didn't really mean that. And you can't point to anything like that. If you start thinking like that, then you go back to the uh, Garden of Eden. Uh, so, uh, obviously, if you said, is there a point at, uh, at, at which uh, I, I saw culture changing? Uh, no, but it, it gradually dawned on me. And I suppose my experience uh, of working uh, as a doctor in a slum and in a prison did, did open my eyes, because most people... Uh, in my situation, middle-class situation, wouldn't even know that any of this existed. And in fact, once I was um, asked by a BBC correspondent, actually, a very nice man, um, uh, a very distinguished man, actually, and he said, well, do you make it all up, what I was writing? <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and I, <laughs> that explains like the last 10 years in one sentence, doesn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, how he could have avoided seeing it, I don't know. But people do, I mean, there's a book in France, I mean, it's not only in Britain. There's a book just out in recent, fairly recently out in France called The French Archipelago. And it's written by a geographical sociologist, or whatever you would call him, who says that now people are living in... We've balkanised our own societies. So people outside that, that group, and these groups are quite large. I mean, if you take the Bobo, the bourgeois bohemians, there are now hundreds of thousands or millions of them. So there's no reason why they should meet anyone outside their circle. And likewise, people uh, who live in a... Uh, some terrible housing estate somewhere probably never meet anybody who doesn't live in a except in, you know, when, if they're working in a supermarket or something like that. So we, we live in a world in which we don't meet many people who are not like ourselves. And I was privileged to meet people who were not like myself, who were living very different life from me. And I was interested, and I think one thing that helped me was having um, travelled a lot around the world. And one time, for example, I, I went across Africa by public transport. And really, all judgment is comparative. So having seen that, having seen, for example, how really poor people are, I mean, I'm not talking about uh, not having all the things they want. I mean, they really had very little indeed and might not even have had enough to... Can't, couldn't be sure that they would have enough to eat the next week or month. Um, and I saw that these people were actually uh, dignified... Uh, polite, and in some ways more civilised than people in this country. Well, what, what do you mean by that? Well, they behaved in a more seemly way. Yeah. And um, and I found that pretty amazing. Even though they had less, they had they had far more dignity with the way that they Absolutely. behaved than with people here. Yes. And why do you think? And why do you think that is? Is do you think because we we indulge people here? Do you think it's because we're more spoiled as a society? 
is it something to do with Well, I, mean, I suppose I would be spoiled, really. I so mean, I we're all spoiled, let's be yeah, fair. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, uh, uh, but I think people don't really know what that kind of hardship is. Mm. Um, as they, I mean, it's not that long ago that people did know that kind of hardship mm. in this country. But anyway, I think people take a lot more for granted uh, and those people didn't take anything for granted. They couldn't take anything for granted. I mean, uh, I'm not, it's not that I advocate going back to, to living in that kind of poverty or anything like that. But that meant that poverty is not, is not a simple uh, phenomenon that impacts on human personality. There must be something else. I guess what you're getting at is in the West, we have the notion that crime, misbehavior, whatever other behaviors that we don't, like and don't want to encourage, uh, people are often saying that it's a product of poverty, poverty. and your argument is... It's not. I mean, it's... Uh, I, I, well, you could know that from, from, uh, from uh, uh, statistics in Britain. I mean, uh, when Britain was a lot poorer, it had a lot less crime. I, I mean, the, the level of crime has shot up immensely. Since, uh, since Edwardian times. Now, people will say, well, of course, the statistics, you can't judge by the statistics because they're kept differently and so on. And there are reasons both for thinking that there was more crime than was recorded then, but also there's a lot of reasons for thinking there's much more crime than is recorded now here. So, I mean, in general, one can say pretty certainly that uh, there's a huge amount of crime. I mean, it goes up and down of course, from year to year. But there's an immense amount of crime by comparison with what there was in, in the, uh, in, before the First World War and even before the Second World War. I, I mean, I've forgotten the exact figure, but there's a sort of more robberies uh, in uh, one London borough in a month than in the whole of Great Britain in, in 1930. So, I mean, it's anyone who can remember knows that this is so. Of course, they've been, uh, again, they've been condescended to by criminologists who tell them that it's the fear of crime rather than crime itself. But, but that's simply not so. And why has this happened? Ah, oh, that is a difficult question. Right. Mm. <laughs> and I'm not sure <laughs> I, uh, can, I can't say, well, I know this is the, the here is the answer. Give us some pointers. Um, uh, well... Uh, for one thing, uh, uh, there's very little repression of crime. The, the criminal justice system is incredibly lax. And people think that we're hard on crime. We're not at all hard on crime. And every, every, um, every government that has tried to do something about it has been stopped by, by forces that are beyond their control. Um, but if you, t if you take, for example, the number of recorded crimes per prisoner in this country, it's gone from six per prisoner in, um, in about uh, 1910 or 1900 to 114 in, in 2000. 114? By comparison with six. Jesus Christ. So uh, I worked this out from the statistics. This is known to the police. Okay. So in other words, um, 
You can commit as many crimes <laughs> as you want, in other words, pretty much. Well, I I wouldn't go quite as far as that. I, I mean, and it depends on... You're right, the, Anthony. You're right. If you commit murder, you probably go to prison. prison. My, my point is, if, you can, if you're allowed to well, commit 114 crimes, that's... That's well, not the state attempting to keep you from doing that. It is, it? It's not really, no. Mm. It's, the state is failing in one of its primary duties. And that is to keep people more or less safe as they go about their legal... Now, the point is that people like you and me don't suffer much from this. But I used to, in the morning, I used to hear the stories of people who have been the victims of crime, and in the afternoon, I would go and see the people who committed the crime. And I, you know, I actually got on. I think I liked uh, the prisoners, and uh, and they got, and they told me, of course, what they'd actually done by comparison with what they'd been charged with having done. And it was a very different story, uh, and because they knew I wasn't going to tell anybody. I mean, not, not specifically, I've told, I'm telling you in general terms, but I wouldn't say this particular prison did this and that. Um, and all of them had done between five and 20 times as much as they've been caught for doing. And, um, and the figures bear this out. I mean, the, the, the number of uh, crimes that are actually, uh, actually solved in the sense they find out who did it, uh, and charge them is something like five or eight percent, and and when they are charged, nothing much happens to them. It's easier apparently to find someone who has been convicted forty times in prison than to find someone who has been convicted only once. Wow! So, uh, and when you consider that someone who has been convicted forty times has probably done between five and 20 times as much as he's been charged with, you realise that, uh, uh, you know, that uh, things are not working out very well. In a way, I would say, there's, this is grounds for optimism because when you consider how pathetic our efforts at <laughs> repressing crime are, the fact is there isn't much crime. I mean, we're not... I don't know about you, but I'm not tortured by crime or anything like that. I, I assume when I go down the street, I'm safe and so on and so forth. I mean, it's not true. It depends where you live. But actually, the question is not why there is so much crime, but why there is so little. And that means that most people, fundamentally, are law-abiding. What is a reason for pessimism is that, theoretically, it should be easy to reduce the crime rate very considerably, and yet we consistently refuse to do it. Mm. And why do we consistently refuse to do it? Because most people think that if, you're, if you regard punishment as any part of the criminal justice system, you're a torturer or a, uh, a sadist. And the truth is? And the truth is that I... I I don't think, I'm not advocating bad treatment of anybody, but I think that the, the, the extreme, when we have a Lord Chief Justice who says that first-time burglars shouldn't be sent to prison, he says they're first-time burglars, that already shows he has no idea what he's dealing with because the chances are they're not first-time burglars. That's the first thing. So he doesn't know what he's talking about. The first-time convicts for burglars. First time, they're first-time convictions. You must always... Remember that a conviction is not the same as the number of offences. <laughs> and, and this is a very simple thing. The other thing that people forget is 
when they they think, oh well, he's middle class and mm. so on and so on. It's easy for him to talk. So he's had an easy life and all that. They don't know whether I've had an easy life or not, of course. But anyway, they can say that. And they say that uh, criminals, on the whole, have had hard lives, and that's true. But many of them have had hard lives, and so on. But the fact is that the victims of crime are also poor. And since the number of victims is much larger than the number of perpetrators, failing to incapacitate the uh, the uh, perpetrators is creating lots of victims who are, and for poorer people who are not themselves criminals, because poverty is not criminal, um, it makes their life much, much harder. So in many ways, what we're failing to do is we're failing to protect the poorest and most vulnerable people in society by these policies or methods or whatever you exactly. might want to call them. Exactly. Uh, but, you see, what it enables uh, people like me, if I were of a different opinion, and I probably would have been of a different opinion if I hadn't sort of worked amongst this for so long, um, is that it enables them to think good, uh, well about themselves, they're being generous and so on, uh, when they're not actually, of course, I mean, you could say, well, it's the means by which the uh, middle class avoid having to pay more tax uh, for a proper criminal justice system. And when you look at the people who are perpetrating the crimes, is there, is there a type, as it were? Or is it just every different? No. Um, Could be a personality type, not necessarily come from... I never really, uh, never really thought that. I mean, obviously, you read, of course, that in prisons there are... <clears throat> uh, that 70% of prisoners have some kind of psychological problem or psychiatric problem. I believe that's a whole load of hokum, and that's an, that is an excuse for the failure to deal with the relatively few raving lunatics in mm. prison, which the NHS is incapable of dealing with uh, because it's so incompetent. And uh, we've closed down all the psychiatric hospitals, so you can't send the lunatics anywhere. And you're not allowed, in a way, rightly, you're not allowed to treat them in prison against their will, so they just stay there and rot. But you cover up that deficiency, which is a real and, in my view, should be an easily soluble problem because it's, a, it's not a huge problem. Um, you cover that up by saying, well, there's 70% of them. Well, what can you do with 70% of 80,000 people? I mean, you can't do anything, you know. But the whole process of diagnosis is so lax uh, and that, uh, that you can claim these things and nobody will... Nobody will bat an eyelid saying, well, this can't be true. Anthony, I, so I was a teacher for many years and I read a stat, and correct me if I'm wrong, maybe it is wrong, I think I read it in the Times Educational Supplement, so we can blame them if it's wrong, but something like 50% of all prisoners have a special educational need, whether it's dyslexic, whether it's, you know, things... I, you don't, know. I don't believe that for a minute. And uh, it is said that prisoners are, on average of lower in IQ than the general population. That may or may not be so. But I found that I never had to talk to the prisoners in any different way from how I'm speaking to you. Now, that might be... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's more than one possible interpretation of that. <laughs> 
But uh, but I, my interpretation was that they were not deficient in intelligence. They could understand everything perfectly well. And I never had to alter what I was saying. I mean, of course, there were a few who were very noticeably uh, of low intelligence and there were some who were mad and there were a few who were a bit like Hannibal Lecter mm. but they were very few um, and generally speaking uh, I found them to be a perfectly adequate intelligence. That's very You know Anthony I feel listening to you a bit like a four-year-old talking to his dad and every question is why 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 <laughs> this why that because you're opening up boxes that we've not looked in. Yeah. Uh, on this show. So you, you've worked in a prison. You've worked with people in that situation. Just what, what are the things that people don't understand? What are the things that the myths that we keep being told? What are the things that we ought to understand about well, the prison system, prisoners, criminal justice, all of that? Well, I think, I mean, people, for example, people will often... In, give you a statistic saying that we have more prisoners per head than you've probably heard this in any other country in Europe, which is only barely true because Spain has almost as many. Uh, but the statistic, the number of prisoners per head, is a ridiculous one uh, because, of course, you're not, there isn't an ideal statistic. Every country must have 100 prisoners per million. It's not a target that irrespective of the number of crimes, I mean, if there were no crimes, then even to have one prisoner would be an outrage. Uh, so the fact that I've never heard anybody say that that statistic is ridiculous, it means nothing. It's only by comparison with the number of crimes that it makes any sense. And the fact is that this is the most crime-ridden country in Western Europe by far. Wow. So the fact that we have slightly more people in prison per head of population actually points to the fact that not enough people well, are... Uh, the last time I looked at Eurostat, and admittedly it wasn't, uh, it didn't have the latest statistics, but the number of uh, violent crimes per prisoner in Spain was a fifth or a sixth of what it is in England. In other words, if you commit a violent crime in Spain, you're five or six times more likely to go to prison than you are in England. And only a criminologist would be surprised to learn that the rate of criminal violence in Spain is much lower than in Britain. <laughs> you have to have a certain level of education to be surprised by that. I mean, you or you probably are not all that surprised. No. I don't know. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, we are very badly educated, as you point out. But um, again, I come back to the, to the why question. You made one point, which is, as a culture, we have become uncomfortable with the idea of punishment. And I feel that. I yeah. feel that in myself. I feel that even when I was growing up, the idea that people respond to incentives and punishment is a disincentive yes. or an incentive, depending on the circumstances, was universally understood. And by the way, sometimes that principle was misapplied yes. and the punishment course, was yeah. far too severe for people. Uh, the way children were treated was just outright wrong in many ways, mm. right? People, uh, you know, physical punishment and all these sorts of things. I would argue are wrong. Why has that changed? Um, I don't know, but let me just go back a minute. No yeah. one wants a society in which the only reason that people behave reasonably well is because there's a policeman around every corner and if he doesn't behave well, 
then uh, they get nicked. They get nicked. So you've got to you've you've got to try and distinguish what prevents people from becoming criminals in the first place is what you do once they have become criminal, once they start behaving criminally. And these two questions they overlap a bit, but they're not exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And they are confounded. So whenever people will say, well, what's the root cause of crime? Well, the root cause of crime, of course, strictly speaking, is the decision to commit it. <laughs> A very unfashionable view nowadays. <laughs> In fact, there can't be any crime without a decision to take, because if you don't take the decision, you're not criminally responsible. So in other, in other words, although it sounds trivial, it is actually the case. And I always treated people as if they had made decisions. They might have been very bad decisions. They might be stupid decisions. They were forgivable sometimes, not always. Uh, although I don't like the word forgivable. I would say either excusable or comprehensible because I can't... If, I, if someone does something wrong to you, I can't forgive him. Only you can do that. Mm. I have no locus standi in the situation. But anyway, so people, and it's perfectly true that, uh, uh, that it's, it's difficult to be in favour of punishment because punishment has been terribly harsh in the past and cruel and sadistic, actually. And, you know, when, when, we, when it was carried out in public, half, half as deterrence and half as entertainment... That, that was horrible and, I'm, you know, one doesn't want to... On the other hand, one has to get, be realistic. So that, for example, the reason you don't park on a double yellow line is not because you... Um... It's because I'm going to get a fine. Yeah, you're going to get a That's fine. That's why I don't yes. park there. Yes, yeah. And if I didn't get a fine, I would park there. It, probably. Guaranteed. In my case, definitely. I mean, you knew two things. The chances of uh, you getting the ticket in the first place and then when you than having to pay the fine. If it was just the ticket, if they just told you, as the police now tell you, uh, if you just assault someone or something, don't do it again, <laughs> um, well, it doesn't matter. I mean, you've been caught, but it doesn't matter. Whereas with the ticket, it does matter because you will be fined. Um, so, um, uh, yes, well, Anyway. We started with the question I was asking you is why, why we've yeah. become uncomfortable about well, applying I think, punishment. I think there's been a long process of propaganda, probably starting with the... I mean, if you have to put a start on it, I'm not saying that you, you know, someone will come and say, oh, well, it was before that. But uh, if you take the, um, the Fabians, for example, take someone like Bernard Shaw, would write about... Uh, would write about um, criminology. And uh, he would argue all the, the things that I now oppose. Now, he was living in a society in which crime was actually a very minor problem. But he didn't know that. He couldn't have known that because he didn't know that it was going to explode later. So many reformers, I think, do not consider the possibility they can make things worse rather than better as they can make they can make things better but they can also make things worse and i've just been to an exhibition at the welcome gallery uh, welcome uh, Collection. institute yeah um and uh, it's about happiness and they were saying how political activism um can make you happier hmm. and and it can make things better 
Well, that's, that is true. It can make things better, but it can also make things worse. Because they gave an illustration of how, you know, marching in the streets and so on and so on. It exactly fitted the Nazis, you know. Now, so there's an example of how activism can make things a lot worse. And this doesn't seem to be a, a, uh, a problem for, for activists. I don't think many think, well, actually, things might get worse as well as better. And nobody, and Dr. Johnson said that all judgment is comparative. Now, what they compare everything with is some kind of utopian vision that they have in their mind, not with what actually exists and what has existed and what could possibly exist. So um, uh, they're not very good at making judgments. People are not very good at making judgments. And Anthony, why am I always hearing this statistic about you say that crime has exploded, that violent crime is going down, that the, the society isn't as violent as it used to be? Oh, well, that, that might well be true. I mean, it depends. You see, you cannot, it depends where, what you look at. So how you look at it, I mean, my financial advisor will always show you that your uh, investments are doing very well. It depends. For, he, <laughs> he carefully selects the dates from which the graph starts. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I take your point. So it might well be. I mean, uh, if our crime rate halved, first of all, the, incidentally, uh, there's abundant evidence of manipulation of the... Uh, criminal statistics. I'll give you an example in a minute. Um, but, uh, but it could go down by half and still be incredibly much higher than it was in 1910. Now you can say, well, what's the standard of comparison? I'm not saying that it's not a good thing if the crime rate goes down. Of course, we, we would all welcome that. But it's still very high. Hmm. So what was the example you were going to give? About oh, well, I was of this uh, manipulation. Mm. Well, it used to be, uh, there's a lot of, uh, you've probably heard uh, about the recidivism rate of non-custodial versus custodial sentences. And that's always been extremely crooked statistic. Because, of course, while the, it, it starts from the uh, per period of release uh, of the prisoner, uh, and, the, and the, the date of sentencing of the non-custodial sentence. Well, of course, while the prisoner is in prison, he's not committing crimes unless he's committing them against other, uh, other prisoners, which can happen, of course. But that doesn't happen that often. So that in itself is a crooked comparison. Mm. Secondly, the people who are in prison have all been through the... Uh, the non-custodial system, because they don't go into... It's very rare that someone, except for a crime like murder, goes into prison the first time he's convicted. So he's been through the whole mill of rehabilitation and so on before he ever gets to prison. But anyway, they used to... Um, they used to use a, a two-year comparison. And suddenly... Uh, and they used to call it re they used to call it reconviction rate, mm. and then they changed it to reoffending rate, mm. which is a lie in itself because the reoffending rate is not the same as the re right as the reconviction rate. Con uh, <laughs> committing an offence and being convicted it's for it is not the same thing. Right, uh, and won't it will never be the same thing, and it certainly won't be the same thing with our police.
Um, so, so, so we're looking for the keys where the light is as opposed to where we dropped them essentially on that particular issue. Yeah, and, and, and the fact is that you have, to, you have to look at the statistics with the extreme scepticism and, and they make it very difficult. You know, so suddenly they change from a, a three-month, a two-year period to a three-month period. Well, how on earth are you supposed to compare whether things are getting better, worse or staying the same? You can't. It becomes impossible. And Anthony, the one thing that I really wanted to talk to you about is the rehabilitation of prisoners. Is it effective or are we just creating a system where someone goes into prison, you effectively lock them in for 11 hours of the day, however long it is, and they come away learning nothing from the experience or anything actually worse? Uh, no, it's not true that they uh, get worse. And actually, again, prisoners rehabilitate themselves in a certain way. Because if you look at the age at which prisoners come into prison for a new sentence, for crime, not sexual crimes, but crimes such as burglary or assault, they stop spontaneously by the, by the, well, before they're 40. Really? Yeah. So they're very, very few. I mean, there are some, of course. Mm. Uh, but the idea that they go on and on for the rest of their lives is not true. Uh, or at least they don't get caught uh, after the age mm. of... <laughs> <laughs> They've worked out how to get past the system. Yeah, that's, that's the advantage with being a veteran. <laughs> Wouldn't that... <laughs> so that suggests that they are self-rehabilitating. And that, of course, I mean, would lead some people to say, well, there's a biological component that's what uh, I was that you can say. Which is probably true, a reduction in, uh, uh, maybe a reduction in uh, testosterone right. aggression. But also, I mean, the, the fact is it's a young man's game. If you want to run away, it's better to be young than old, as I can tell you <laughs> from experience. And not that I'm running away from anything, but I, I couldn't run away from anything very much. So, um, but anyway, so the, the idea of rehabilitation is... Uh, and it's not as if it hasn't been tried. Mm. I mean, it's been tried, but it, it doesn't seem uh, to work. And uh, except in the sense that people eventually, and that's a good thing, of course, mm. that they eventually uh, get over their life of crime. And presumably they find jobs and things like that. And I'm all in favour of that, of course. And, and what do you think about the whole having to disclose criminal records? Do you think that actually stops people from rehabilitating, re-entering into society, or do you think it's a good thing? You well, mean for I, job applications? Yeah, for job applications. I face, I, I face both ways there. Yeah. I mean, I'm in favour of, of course, allowing people uh, a second chance and a, even a third chance or a 48th chance in some cases. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, and so I can understand why one shouldn't. Uh, on the other hand, if I'm employing someone uh, in my, to do my accounts, I would want to know that he was a convicted embezzler. So uh, I think it's a difficult, and if you like, as an example of how there is no perfect solution to, to that particular problem. I mean, the, ideally what you would like is for people to know and to want to give people a chance. Mm. It's your decision that you, you say, you take this person, you're prepared to take the chance that he's, uh, that he's reformed um, but or changed. Uh, but um, I, I 
I don't see a simple solution to that, a simple rule that a rule will, if you make a rule, it'll be hard on, on somebody. Yes. And, and we're talking about rehabilitation and we're talking about reintegrating people. What do we do with people who have offences, sexual offences? And how do you reintegrate those types of people into society? Because that is a, that is a question for the ages. Because when someone goes in for a sex-based offence, a lot of the time, and you could argue quite rightly, their career is finished, their reputation is destroyed. Is there ever a way to reintegrate those people back into society or is... Well, again, I mean, I think it's the same answer, isn't it? You mm. want those people, you don't want people... I mean, you don't want people automatically to have a life sentence. Um, on the other hand... Uh, you can understand why people don't want someone like that living next door to him. So I'm, I'm not sure I've got... I, I think we... Uh, there's no simple answer to that. But also we have to... We have to get the... the um, a sense of proportion in that this really is not a huge, vast problem like some other things are a big a much bigger problem uh before i was going to ask you another why question but <laughs> let's stick with that when you say it's not a huge problem you mean statistically, statistically. Speak, comparatively obviously to the individual victim of, uh, yeah, yeah. Of i just wanted to clarify yeah, that yeah yeah in yeah, case yeah, some idea. i mean the the <laughs> uh, um i remember yeah. You can easily look very callous by saying it's not a big problem yeah. because yeah, then yeah. somebody comes along and says, "Well, it happened to me." Yes, uh, and I had a colleague who was caught, yes, caught out like that so on a program. He was put in a an audience, and he was a psychiatrist, and he was asked about schizophrenia and murder, and he said, "Well, actually, he gave the statistics and so on, and said this is not a, a huge problem, and, and and so on and so forth." And of course, they'd put him next to a woman whose husband had just been murdered by a schizophrenic. <laughs> and that, I'm afraid, is... <laughs> uh, that, that is not is good. The, well, that is the technique of our, our, our television mm. uh, yeah. well, shows. And I made the comment for those people, but I also want to ask you what you mean by that. Which crime is the big issue, you think? Well, there, there are several. Uh, and... And many smaller crimes, of course, are not individually very important, uh, but are um, uh, cumulatively important um, and have bad effects. So that, for example, uh, shoplifting, which is not a terribly serious crime, but if it's bad enough, it will drive people out of business and take uh, close down shops and so on. And you can see it in suburbs of Paris. There are no shops in the suburbs, or some of the suburbs in Paris. Nobody will open a shop there. Uh, and it's not that, well, I mean, there's arson as well. But um, so you can say that although each individual crime is not terribly serious, uh, cumulatively it is very serious. Mm. Um, but assault is very serious. Uh, yeah, yeah I, if you don't mind me going a bit off uh, off the we track do not here, no. go for it. Uh, to give you an example of what our police are like, or what some of our police are like, 
in the hospital in which I work, first of all, when I started, we had porters, then we got security of, uh, uh, security men, and finally got a police station on the, in the hospital. And, um, uh, and that, they of course did nothing. And once, on one occasion, a policeman watched a nurse being assaulted by a drunk uh, and did nothing, didn't arrest the person or anything like that. Why not? Well, it's normal. You don't, well, because there's so much paperwork to fill in afterwards. <laughs> and as one chief constable said to me, you wouldn't want our police to just be filling in paperwork, would you? So anyway, I mean, he put it in print. So um, anyhow. Didn't mind doing that paperwork. Did <laughs> no. So anyway, uh, and I wrote to the chief constable saying this has happened. And he wrote back and said, no, no, it doesn't happen. Never happened. That didn't happen. So anyway, I left it. I, I was pretty disgusted by his answer. But anyway, uh, he said, we always take all crime seriously, etc., etc." He's like a politician. And of course, the chief constables are politicians. They're not policemen anymore. But anyway, um, about three months later, notices started appearing all over the hospital saying, from now on, Anybody assaulting a member of staff on the hospital premises will be will be uh, charged. Okay, which was an admission that what he said before <laughs> was a lie, and secondly, uh, it was rather ambiguous anyway because it rather suggested that assaulting someone other than a <laughs> member of staff or not on the hospital premises was all right. Mm. And they often say things, the police often say these things without actually understanding what they're saying. Hey Francis, do you like books? I only like comics. That's why my favourite publication is The Guardian. It's true, no one does satire and parody like they do. So, did you have a brilliant satirical book for me? Yes, it's a book by one of our fans, Scott Bicheno, and it's called Identity Crisis. It has been described as 1984 with jokes. So it is like The Guardian. No, 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 mate. It's intentionally funny. Set in present-day Northwest London, it tracks the personal journey of cocksure city boy Dave Dalston through a period in which the government has decided to define everyone by their ego profile via a document called the id card. It's a roller coaster ride through cancellation, redemption, and spiritual enlightenment. The author has been a fan of trigonometry from the very start, and he has drawn a lot of inspiration from its conversations. So if you're a fan of trigonometry, then you're gonna love this book. Anton, we are getting our 10%, aren't we? Check it out on Amazon, guys. The link is in the description below. So let me let me come back to the to the why question. You you said earlier that politicians had been elected to address this issue and were unable to do so due to quote forces outside of their control, I think is what you yeah. said. Civil service mentality, um, don't want to 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 change. They're afraid also I mean they I think they're afraid of I think they're afraid of the Guardian actually. And the commentary. Mm. Um, and you see, you don't get much, cu you don't get much kudos amongst intellectuals by saying the kind of things I'm saying. No, mm. 
I mean, I wouldn't advise you to say it at dinner parties. <laughs> <laughs> You're operating under the very false assumption that I still get invited to them, which I do not. Uh, you know, I, I've given up attempting to be liked by people that I despise a long time ago. But Well, I, I don't despise them. I just think they're mistaken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I once had, I mean, the only time I've ever persuaded anybody, actually, was a man called uh, Jonathan Miller, the theatre producer, mm. for whom I had a high regard, who was a very decent and obviously highly intelligent man, and he was a brilliant uh, theatre producer. And, my, you know, he was a, had the standard view of crime and mm. it's all poverty and, all, and, and so on and so forth, and I, pers- and I managed to persuade him a bit otherwise, and he just said, well, I, I don't have the argument against that and therefore I must accept it. Mm. Mm. But that is... Very, very rare. No, very when rare. I say I despise, what I mean is there is there is a group of people that if you have the wrong opinion, see, uh, they will ostracize you. They they believe that you should be pushed out of polite company, yes. society, yeah. etc. To think, me, that is behavior that is worthy of contempt personally. But, but people are Well, I think that what, what has happened, and I can't explain exactly why, I think that the, the idea of virtue is now almost entirely a matter of opinion. I mean, not in the sense that you, if you have the correct opinions, you're virtuous. If you don't have the correct opinions, you're a monster or you're a bad person. Now, I don't take that view, I don't take that view because I think you know, many people with wrong opinions that I consider wrong are very virtuous, good people. Quite. Um, uh, so actually, opinion is not virtue. Mm. Um, so what is virtue? Oh, well, that's difficult, but I think it must involve, to a degree, behaviour. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, how old-fashioned. What a world. What a world that we live in. And do do you think we need to reform the prison service? Do you think it needs radical reformation? Um, I must say that I think uh, things got better in my in my time. I mean, don't forget I've been retired from it for 15 or 16 years, so I'm talking entirely from memory. And I think, I mean, conditions improved enormously, I'm glad to say, while I was in uh, in prison. I would like, I mean, the thing, I've said that rehabilitation, I don't really believe in rehabilitation, but what I would like to see is more effort at... uh, cultural activity in Mm. prison Uh, and I am in favour of education just because I'm in favour of education and uh, many of these people have had extremely bad educations and it's one situation in which they might get a good education but if uh, it depends what you mean by fundamental reform. As in do you think enough opportunity is given to prisoners to learn skills to improve themselves to come out with a trade uh, well, obviously, you can. I mean, I would uh, be happy if it were increased. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, and I think that is so irrespective. I mean, supposing you you made all the efforts in the world to improve it, and you you found that actually it didn't decrease the recidivism rate. Uh, I would still be in favour of it because I think it's a kind of ethical thing to do. You, you ought to make an effort, even if it turns out that your effort isn't entirely successful. Uh, but I also believe that prisoners were 
capable of a lot more than than um, than our society demands of them. Not only them, but of huge numbers of people in this in this country. And you said you didn't believe in rehabilitation, quote unquote. What, what do you mean by that? Andrew? Well, I don't know. What do you mean by rehabilitation? I mean, I mean, I mean, the first thing is that rehabilitation means that there's something wrong with them in the first place. Mm. Well, you could argue there is, isn't there? Like going around like... They make bad decisions. Is making bad decisions having something wrong with you? Um, I mean, if you're going there around... Are... Mate, I, I've seen some of the decisions you've made. Don't try and argue <laughs> this one. I, I, no, I'll push back on that. I think if you're going around, you know, uh, you know, burgling 50 houses day in, day out, I think there is something wrong with you. I think if you go around and sexually assault someone... I think well, there is something wrong with you. Sexually assaulting is one thing, and uh, I agree, for example, I met... This is a small number of people, uh, but you do meet people who, from the very earliest age, have done terrible things. So, you know, from the age of three, they put the cat in the washing machine and mm. things like that. And whatever, you know, they do, they steal and lie when there's absolutely no advantage to it to them and they don't learn and then they become aggressive and so on and so forth. And it's very difficult to believe that there isn't something wrong with them in the sense that they've got a slightly different brain from others. And that's been recognised for a long time. You know, it used to be called moral insanity. You know, that they were sane from every possible point of view, but uh, they didn't have any moral sense. And they never learnt any moral sense. So there are those people. But the vast majority, I don't think, have anything, uh, anything wrong with them. And as I said, they do actually stop spontaneously. Most of them. Not all, but most. Well, let me give you a, a phrasing of rehabilitation that you can then destroy with facts and logic. So um, to me, rehabilitation would be to take someone who's in prison for committing a crime yes. and they come out and lead a quote-unquote normal life. They have a job, they might have relationships, family, whatever, and they never... Well, they eventually do, as I said, they eventually do that spontaneously. Yeah, when their testosterone level <laughs> drops and, and the, yes. they're no longer trying to make so, their mark on the yes. world. And I'm, I'm, of course. And but what though, I mean is, if take you a twenty-year-old. If, if you have a long, if you have a long time in, if someone has a long time in prison, it's reasonable to give him assistance to, uh, to reintegrate into a society which, amongst other things, will have changed since he last saw it. And you can't just chuck him out and say, "Well, here's fifty quid now, get on with it," um, which is largely what happens. But uh, the same is true of drug addicts. I mean, the reason rehabilitation for drug addicts isn't a medical procedure, in my, this is my view, it's that drug addicts have destroyed their lives, they've you know, ruined their relationship with their family, they know only drug addicts, it's very difficult for them to get a job because if an employer says, what have you been doing for the last 10 years, if they told him the truth, the drug, the, the employer wouldn't, want him. So that is a kind of practical assistance that that people need. So they might, for example, need halfway houses and, and that kind of thing to get back on their feet. Whether you call that rehabilitation, I, I don't know, would you call that rehabilitation? Part of the process, yeah. I would think, yeah. Yeah, well, in that case, I would be in favour of that, yes. Mm. Uh, because... Uh, uh, it, you can easily see that if you've wasted or ruined 10 years of your life, you don't just pick up 
the next day and proceed as if nothing has happened in the meantime. And where do you stand on imprisoning drug addicts? People who are heroin addicts, for instance, causing crime after crime after crime purely to feed their addiction. Should we criminalise these people or well, should think, we treat it as a help? Uh, well, problem? here you see I disagree with your, uh, your characterization of the problem. Mm. If you take drug addicts, as I did in the prison, who ended up in prison drug addicts, what you found is that they, they had, most of them had been convicted often many times before they ever took heroin. So insofar as there's a relationship between taking heroin and crime, it is that the attraction to crime attracts them to heroin. And if you take heroin addiction, it's not something that just happens to you. Uh, it doesn't, it's not like Parkinson's disease and no one really knows where it comes from. And it's, you know, it's just one of those terrible things. Heroin addiction is not like that. Heroin addicts on the whole, the injecting heroin addicts, uh, they go at it for about 18 months before they ever start taking it regularly. They know all about it. To become a heroin addict, you have to know where to get your heroin. You have to know how to uh, prepare it. You have to know how to inject it and where to get the syringes from. Most people find injecting something that they wouldn't really want to do unless they had to. So in other words, it's not true that heroin hooks them. They hook heroin. So it is a choice to be a heroin addict. And furthermore, many, many just give up. So uh, it is not true that they burgle houses just to feed their habit. And actually heroin addicts, well, and certainly morphine addicts in the 1920s, were perfectly capable of going out to work just like anybody else. Really? Yeah. So this idea... You think they had a better time of it, I imagine. Yeah. So this idea of, of a junkie committing crime in order to feed his, his addiction... Is a very, is, shall we say, is very oversimplified. Mm -hmm. And I remember they used to say, one of them I remember, I should say, not Dave, one said, I went out to work, by which he meant he went out burgling from nine to five. I said, couldn't you do something other than burgle mm -hmm. nine to five? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> something a little less strenuous. Yeah. And... Uh, and um, uh, so I, I I don't think it's a simple it's it's a simple matter. It's a simple and then but let's say they they are addicted. Do yeah. we how should we treat that? Is it as a criminal issue or is it as a medical? If they issue? do well, I don't think I would treat. Uh, I would say taking heroin is criminal would treat it as criminal in itself. But if they commit crimes, then I would say yes. Yeah, but, but I guess what Francis is getting at is is the what people call the war on drugs, uh, the criminalization of drug use. Well, I mean, when people say, I mean, I've had this discussion lots and lots of times. They say, well, we, if, if we, um, uh, if we decriminalized, if we made everything available, so you could just go down the shop and buy your crack, uh, then all the crime would disappear. I don't believe that. No. And I don't believe that needles are going to be beaten into plowshares once we've uh, decriminalised <laughs> uh, mm. uh, things. I, I think that we will find something else. And people always say, well, look at Colombia, for example, how violent and so on. Well, people forget that Colombia was extremely violent, in fact, more violent before the existence of coke, well, the widespread use of cocaine, as was Mexico. So 
the idea that if we could, uh, if we uh, decriminalized everything, I don't think, is there anybody who suggests we should decriminalize everything? No, but well, what about something like cannabis? That's where the battle well, lines that, are that, at the moment. Well, uh, that is more discussable. However, of course, it doesn't necessarily mean there'll be less interference from the state. It might eventually be more because people will have to start being tested for cannabis all the time and so on and so forth. I mean, there are many situations in which people cannot, even if they're legal, even if it's legalised, should not take cannabis. For example, driving or you don't want your train driver to be high on cannabis or your... It will take, the service will take a lot longer. Yeah, it would. But, <laughs> but we don't test people for alcohol in that way, do we? So Yeah, well, we do in a way. I mean, in the sense that we... I mean, most of the time, we're not allowed to be drunk. Actually, that's another thing. We don't, we don't enforce the laws against alcohol, uh, being drunk and incapable or drunk and disorderly. Mm. We don't do anything like that, and that's why all foreigners who come to this country are absolutely appalled. I am one such, and I was about to make the joke that it seems to me just British English culture more than anything to well, be drunk and disorderly on a Friday well, it, it, night. Yes, well, it's not, it's not legal. And uh, but nobody enforces the law, and it it wasn't. People will say, "Oh, what about Gin Lane?" They always say that once you start, as if nothing happened between Gin Lane and 1980. <laughs> 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 and uh, so, anyway, um, uh, it it isn't. I mean, it, of course, it has become culture. But if it's become culture, it's a very bad culture. I mean, the fact that something is a culture doesn't mean that it's good. Well, coming from a Russian, uh, I think criticizing British drinking culture would be wrong. So let me instead move <laughs> Yes, on. I must say, yeah, I've seen some that, that fairly would be, unpleasant things Yeah, in I'm not sure I could, I could really pull that off. But let me, final question before we get to our final, final question, penultimate question, therefore. What did you learn from working in prison all this time? Uh, I would say that uh, everyone is equal. That's what I learned. For example, to give you an example, I'm not, I'm not allowed. Are you allowed to swear on this? Of course Absolutely. you are. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, prisoners would come in, so I've got this fucking headache. So I'd say, <laughs> well, before we go any further, what's the difference between a headache and a fucking headache? <laughs> and actually, there is a, a headache that you can get on uh, sexual intercourse, but that's not what they meant. And, uh, <laughs> My girlfriend suffers from it regularly. Thank you. Uh, um, anyhow, so they'd say, well, that's how I speak. And I say, yes, that's what I'm complaining of. <laughs> <laughs> that is going to be one of the most surreal conversations in the history of humanity. <laughs> I can just see you there in your tweed jacket. Go, okay, yeah. carry on. So, uh, I mean, uh, when I said that, they could stop. No one had ever asked them to stop. But they could stop. They discovered it is possible to speak for longer than about three seconds without using that word. Anyway, some would say, well, why shouldn't I? You know, that's the way I speak. And I said, well, supposing I said to you at the end of this consultation, here's some fucking tablets. <laughs> <laughs> Take two, two of the fuckers every four fucking hours. And if they don't fucking work, come the fuck back and I'll give you some other fucking... You'd be a bit surprised. <laughs> I would say so. <laughs> so uh, I established that I knew how to use the word. 
uh, so I say, we're equal. I don't talk to you like that. You don't talk to me like that. So that's what I learned, I think. What I'm hearing underpinning all of that, Anthony, is that we pretend way too much about other people's capacity to whatever it is, to behave, to... We pretend that things... Some people just can't do this or yes. we can't not do that or or it's the way that we, you know, it's the it's the childhood. And yes, the childhood is important and yes, the education is important. But what I'm hearing underpinning all of that is actually if we call ourselves out and each other out on bad behavior, sometimes it's just because bad behavior is easier or we're yes. used to it or whatever it yes. is. Yeah. Is that what I'm hearing? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, I would say that's roughly right. And I believe that that was your experience as a teacher. Mm. That is very much so. That we, part of the reason the school system is no longer fit for purpose is because of bad behaviour. You cannot be taught, you cannot learn in a classroom if there is a disruption every four to five minutes. No learning happens. And we don't want to talk about it because, unfortunately, in the education system, things have gone so far to the left that it's almost seen as an act of oppression for, for a teacher... To say, stop doing that. Yeah. And to have rules in the classroom. One of my colleagues uh, and one of the best teachers I ever saw was described as right wing because uh, she was a strict teacher. This is a woman who dedicated her life to teaching in a poor, deprived primary school in East London. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I, I think, I mean, you would know better than I, uh, that children are happier with that. Oh, absolutely. Because you know what? It makes them feel safe. Because when there is strict orders in place when there is rules it gives them a structure and particularly for the poorest and most vulnerable kids that's what they crave because they don't have it at home mm. there we go there we go <laughs> it, it seems to me common sense really but. it does but we seem to and maybe this ties into everything that we've talked we're talking about we are living in a society which is rapidly abandoning common sense yeah Mm. Good ending, mate. Look, yeah. we had a lovely, funny story, and then let's just wrap it up on the fact that the world's going down the toilet. Fantastic. That's how I end all my gigs. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah explains the reaction the now. Uh, <laughs> Anthony Theodore Dalrymple, thank you so much for coming on. We've got one final question for you, as always, which yeah. is what is the one thing that we're not talking about as a society that we really should be? Uh, well, I think we're talking about the death of common sense and the centralization of the marginal. So that what you get is a marginal phenomenon taking over our um, taking over our imagination completely. So that, uh, for example, well, a good example is transsexualism. What comes next is the interesting question. Oh, hello. Oh, hello. And what do you think? <laughs> what is do you think come? is coming next? I think it'll be incest. Explain. <laughs> I think incest will be permissible soon. Because there's no logical argument against it. I mean, uh, biology. But then you you don't have to have children, right? You don't have to have children. So two consenting adults, quote unquote. Exactly. Go for it. There will be celebrations up and down Cornwall. (laughs) (laughs) Mate, you did that joke last time. We got a lot of angry letters. No, I did it against Wales. No, you did Cornwall the one before that. You're losing track of your own fucking jokes. Jesus Christ. 
Well, thank you for that. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. We've got a couple of questions for locals. I'm sure they're going to be even more problematic than that. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, where can people find your work online? Where, uh, well, uh, or which books should they buy of yours, particularly given some of the well, subjects we've been talking about? Well, I would say all about? of them. You would, yeah. you, you would say that. <laughs> and and, uh, so. uh, well, of course, Amazon. You can find. Uh, I mean, it's not that I'm keen on Amazon, but uh, but you, it's very convenient. And um, you know, various journals. I don't write much in this country anymore. I can see why. <laughs> <laughs> uh, make sure to check uh, Anthony's work under th- his pseudonym Theodore Dalrymple. Uh, I'm sure you will agree with me. It's been an absolutely incredible interview. And we've got a couple of questions for locals we're going to ask in a second. But in the meantime, thank you so much for watching and listening. We'll see you very soon with another brilliant episode like this one or Raw Show. They always go out at 7 p.m. UK time, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard. And the interviews are also available as a podcast if you like your trigonometry on the go. Take care and see you soon, guys. We hope you've enjoyed this incredible interview. Remember to subscribe and hit the bell button so that you never miss another fantastic episode. And if you believe that the work we do here at Trigonometry is important, support us by joining our locals community using the link below. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.